0: This is Ethan Frederick, a host on New Books in Latin American Studies, a channel on the New Books Network. Today, we'll be talking to Professor Julia Young about her new book, Mexican Exodus, Immigrants, Exiles, and Refugees of the Cristero War. Welcome to the show, Julia.
1: Thank you. Thank you for having me.
0: Julia, I wonder if you could begin by telling us a little bit about yourself and your work more generally.
1: Yeah, sure. Um, so I am an associate professor of history at the Catholic University of America in Washington, D.C., Um, I was trained as a historian of Latin America at the University of Chicago, where I did my dissertation and doctoral work. Um, I also did a master's in Latin American studies at New York University. Um, I have, uh, now worked on projects related to the history of Mexico and history of migration since, um... 2003 or so. Um, I've lived and researched in Mexico a couple different times. Uh, the most recent time I was back there was this summer to do research for my for my new project. So I'm very, very interested in Mexican history, and especially as it relates to Mexican migration. And then the only other thing I think worth mentioning is that I um, also write fairly frequently for the press and for the media about Mexico, Mexican migration, um, migration more broadly, uh, U.S. migration policy, and then religion. I am also very interested in the ways that religion and especially the U.S. Catholic Church intersects with migration.
0: Well, I've definitely enjoyed reading some of your, your public writing or your non-academic writing before. So I think at the, at the end, when we get into the legacy of what this book is about, um, I hope to, to talk about that a little bit, too. Um, so I really enjoyed reading your book, um, Mexican Exodus, for a variety of reasons, one of which is that you really clearly spell out the, the significance and nature of the argument that you're making. Um, right away on page 13 in the, in the introduction, you tell us, My primary argument about the Cristero War is that because of emigration, it had a much wider geographical impact than most scholars have assumed. Assuming that not everyone listening to this is intimately familiar with this conflict, could you give us a little brief introduction of what the Cristero War was?
1: Sure. Um, Okay, so the Cristero War was a conflict put most simply between church and Catholic partisans and the Mexican state. And it wasn't the first time that Um, religious and anti-clerical forces had clashed in Mexico. That tension between church and state actually goes back, arguably, to the colonial period and certainly was a huge issue in the 19th century. Um, Famously, Benito Juarez, um, in the wars of reform and the laws of reform, made an attempt to restrict the power of the Catholic Church and of Catholic clergy um, in the public sphere so, the Cristero War re- begins um, in 1926 after President Plutarco Elias Calles releases or publishes a penal code, which is colloquially known as the Ley Calles, which lays out the punishments for violating the religious restrictions in the 1917 Constitution. The 1917 Constitution comes out of the Mexican Revolution of 1910 to 1920. So, if the Mexican Revolution is anti clerical, or in other words, sort of seeks to restrict the power and the presence of the Catholic Church in public, then the backlash, the Cristeros or the Cristero War is a backlash against that anti clericalism. And um, who fights it? So, it is, uh, I, I call them in my book Catholic partisans, but it's lay Catholics. Um, Some of them are middle class and some of them are elites. Those people tend to live in the cities. And then in the countryside, um, more like they're in Mexico, they're referred to as campesinos, but more like um, rural peasantry that takes the side of the church against the revolutionary state. And the war goes on for... um, Three years from 1926 to 1929, and in 1929, the church signs an agreement, these are known as the arreglos, um, with the Mexican government. It's brokered in part with uh, the help of US diplomats, uh, and the church essentially tells Cristero fighters to lay down their arms, and the war is officially ended. But um, but for those Cristero partisans, they felt that they had been, that it was a defeat. And they continued to rise up in sort of sporadic insurgencies all, almost through the entire decade of the 1930s. So, um, so it's a conflict that has, it's a funny, well, it's always funny to talk about it and write about it because it's 1926 to 1929 is like the neat bracketed date. But then there are these uh, resurgences of fighting into the 1930s. And that's sometimes referred to in Mexico as La Segunda Cristiada or the Second Cristiada. And I should just also say that the term Cristero or Cristero comes from the battle cry of the Catholic fighters, which was Viva Cristo Rey or Long Live Christ the King. So they were kind of derisively referred to as Cristeros, which I guess would translate to Christers (laughs) um, or, you know, kind of Christ the Kingers. And they then adopted that name Sort of proudly, and so now you know people will re- people will refer to those partisans, those Catholic partisans, as cristeros.
0: Well, I think that's a very apt summary to uh, to catch listeners up, and then to bring that up to the argument that you set out in this introduction—that you want to look at how emigration made this war a lot more national or a lot more international than many scholars have treated it. I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about that angle and maybe how you got to this conclusion. In your archival experience,
1: yeah. Well, actually, the project really started as a migration project. I um, I got to the University of Chicago in 2003, and there was a visiting professor there, Jorge Durand, who, um, along with Doug Massey at Prince Jorge Durand is at the University of Guadalajara, and along with Doug Massey at Princeton University, they've run a, this multi-decade now project called the Mexican Migration Project, and. Um, Jorge Duran taught a class on the history of Mexican migration. And so I took that class and I realized I was really interested in this period of the 1920s, which is often pointed to as the period when Mexican migration started. That's, that's a complicated thing to say, because actually, of course, Mexican migration starts, <laughs> if you, it's, if we could say it starts in 1848. After the Mexican American War, we could point and there's certainly earlier migration than the 1920s. But in the 1920s, we see a huge uptick in migration from the cent- west central region of Mexico, which is which would then be the se- the major sending region of migrants and migration for the rest of the 20th century. So the 1920s sees the beginning of the, of these patterns of migration, which continue all throughout the century and even into today. So I started, you know, just asking these really basic questions like, why did migration start from there? What was happening in the 1920s in, in, the, in these places where so many migrants were leaving? And I kind of stumbled into the Cristero War and started to wonder if that might've been a factor. And I was uh, interested in these questions of religion and religious identity sort of abstractly, but I came to see how significant historically the Cristero War had been for that region. And so it seemed logical to me that those migrants who were leaving at the same time and from the same place where the Cristero War was happening might have themselves been leaving in part because of the Cristero War, and then also might have been at a minimum sort of interested in and following the Cristero War. And what I didn't, Necessarily expect to find was evidence that migrants had been so um, widely, what I would argue is participating in the Cristero War from a distance, and that's the so. So I think it was the first summer that I started doing archival research in Mexico, and I was just sort of trying to look at where where I could see evidence of the Cristero War in this history of migration, and I just started finding these documents about. Conspiracies of Cristero supporters in the United States, and I thought there 's a story there there 's really got to be a story there because that's not um, th- that wasn 't anything I was reading about in histories of Mexican migration i wasn 't reading much about the history of religious activism among Mexican migrants. later on, I would go I, I did find that other people had written a bit about this, although not a whole book <laughs> so and then i didn 't find that um in histories of the Cristero War, migration was just not really referred to, or it was sort of referred to in a line or two. So it's really was about kind of bringing these two stories together in my book and taking these two stories, which had been treated as very separate stories. And one had been treated as a Mexican story and the other had been treated as a, as a U.S. story, migration to the U.S. um, and, and bringing them together.
0: I think um, it's already become very clear in your answers. And then immediately in the introduction, you need to deal with it. Some of the problems of language that you, that you clearly had in, in naming people, identifying that while the Cristeros are Catholic, so are most of the people fighting on the other side. It's just a disagreement about Catholicism. And, and there's lots of these problems that you get into and I think set out very well in the introduction. I think one of the ones that I, I was left chewing on the most was on page nine when you describe. The emigrants that continue participating with the Cristeros as a diaspora within a diaspora. I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit more about this phrasing.
1: Yeah, um, I wanted to be careful, you know, not to. It, yeah, I wanted to be careful to try to find a way to accurately describe. Who these people were without making irresponsible claims. It's really tempting. I know that I really look in when I was working on the dissertation, especially, I dreamed about finding that archival source that would give me the exact numbers of Cristero supporters in the United States. And something that would tell me, you know, X percent of Mexicans in the US supported the Cristero War. And I just never found that. And that doesn't As far as I know, that doesn't really exist. And so, you know, how do you talk about, I was always getting that question. Well, how many were there and how many people were there that supported the Cristero War? And was it all of the Mexican migrants in the U.S. or was it 5% of them? And I never could really um, answer that question. And I finally decided just to embrace the fact that I couldn't answer that question and to try to find a way to use language to make it clear that I was talking about a subset of the Mexican migrant population because I could see from the archival resources that there were Mexicans who supported the revolutionary government from the United States. Um, Plenty of them, possibly a, possibly, you know, a majority of them, although it it depended very much on the location. So, um, so really I wanted at the outset of the book to acknowledge a certain amount of uncertainty, but also to describe that describe a differentiation in the communities of mexican migrants in the united states and i think that's something that's really important to do in migration history immigrants when they come to the united states or when they come to any other place where they immigrate they don't leave their politics behind and they often are not and they're not all aligned around the same causes and they often will bring their divisions with them and those divisions will continue to impact community formation there so that's um So that's what I tried to get at with that discussion of a diaspora within a diaspora and then throughout the book. And it's also really important, Um, you know, I work at Catholic University and I present my work sometimes to people who are really familiar with Catholic stuff, but aren't familiar so much with the history of Mexico. And they view the Cristero War as a time of uh, where Catholics were persecuted right? A time of persecution against Catholics. And I like to always remind people, well, wait a second. It's more complicated than that because 98% of Mexico was Catholic in the 1920s. And so this is actually Catholics fighting other Catholics. This is a division within Mexican society. And so, um, so yeah, but you know, I guess in a way that terminology is my answer to the fact that I don't have an answer about exact numbers and probably no one ever will. But if someone can find that out, <laughs> that would be, a, that would be great.
0: Uh, I think we all have sources that we dream of like that.
1: Exactly. I can see it. I can see the source, but <laughs> it, I don't think it exists.
0: Well, even without uh, miracle sources like that, um, moving on to your first chapter, you do tell us a lot of really great information about migration, which some of it is, um, a little bit familiar to people that have maybe studied Mexican immigration to the U.S. before, but you certainly make lots of novel connections and then bring in interesting information. Um, one of the ones I enjoyed the one of the connections that I enjoyed the most was your demonstration of how the Cristero War connected to other changes in Mexican immigration, both in terms of number and regional or uh, origin, class, and lots of other factors that you can connect to the Cristero Re- Rebellion. I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about some of those.
1: Sure. I mean, I think one thing to think about is that I I thought about some is would this migration have happened without the Cristero War? And I think absolutely the answer is yes. Um, And in fact, it happened before the Cristero War started, and it continued after the Cristero War stopped. Right. So the Cristero War was not the factor leading to migration. Um, It was a factor when there were many factors. So, you know, the in the twenties we see some of the changes that really would lead to increased migration anywhere. We see cheaper transportation that's more accessible that connects, um, that's more accessible to more people that connects more people in Mexico to the United States makes it cheaper cheaper and easier for them to get there. Um, we see a lot of the same factors that we see to this day, although we're in an interesting period where Mexican migration has actually slowed um, since 2008 or so. But um, w- what we call uh, push factors and pull factors, right? So factors in Mexico or conditions in Mexico that are helping to push people to migrate and then conditions in the United States that are pulling people, that are attracting people there. And so we have the wage differential, you know, wages being so much higher in the United States than in Mexico, economic, um, economic strength, relative economic strength, so um, in the US, we're in the roaring 20s, where in Mexico, whereas in Mexico, um, the economy wasn't the worst it had been, but Mexico's just coming out in the 1920s from a 10-year-long, the, from the Mexican Revolution, which is effectively a 10-year-long civil war. Um, uh, so transportation, economics, um, and then the Crucero War contributes to migration by, uh, in a couple of ways, there's a There's famously, and other scholars have talked about this, there the reconcentration campaigns. So um, that would be the federal troops coming in and moving all of the people and forcing all of the people in a particular village or town to leave and to go um, and, and to leave that area, to leave that region. And so then you have people who might not have been mobile who are suddenly mobilized. And where do they go? Well, they often go first to the big cities, um and in the case of the Cristero region, that's Guadalajara or Morelia. But once you are mobilized and once you go to a big city, and this is pretty common in the in migration studies or migration history generally, you are um it's a little easier for you to make the leap and go somewhere further away, like to the border or to the United States. So um, does that
0: answer your question? Yes, that absolutely does. Your can you tell us a little bit more about these people that emigrate in your second chapter? Um, especially the people who are mostly motivated by the war, even though there are many factors, um, including political dissidents, clergy that are forced out by the government and the ways that they were integrated and sometimes not so integrated into existing Catholic and Mexican American communities. So I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about what the experience was like for, for clergy and political dissidents that were more motivated by the war as they arrived in the United States.
1: Yeah, so this is a group where we do have some numbers. Um, I think the number, the estimated number of clergy, is somewhere around twenty five hundred people. I have that in my book, but didn't look up the exact number. Um, But uh, and I can get that to you later if you like. But um, so there is, but that that's a small number compared to the relative number of migrants, right? Um, we think the number of migrants in the 1920s could be between 400,000 and a million people. The num- it's very hard. Numbers in general, just to go back to that point, it's really hard to figure out the numbers even um, based on the records that we that we do have, because there just wasn't such a systematic way of counting the number of people who crossed the border. And there are a lot of different records kept on the Mexican side and on the U.S. side. But anyway, we know that there's a much larger number of migrants and then this much smaller subset of people that are political refugees or political exiles or religious refugees. But, um, and that number is, you know, in the couple thousands, right? The If we have religious, if we have the clergy, if we have around 2,500 clergy, you know, maybe we have a few hundred political exiles. Um, that's not a scientific emphasis, uh, estimate. So, um, but these people have a really outsized impact on the larger migrant community. And I think that's what, um, I tried to argue in that chapter and throughout the book that you know one particularly active political priest, if placed in a community of Mexican immigrants somewhere in the United States, could do so much to rally that community around the Cristero cause, and and um, and so those you know and and then and then the political exiles. Were I always think what's so interesting about the Mexican government's policy, or really any government's policy of, of exiling political dissidents, is that you solve a problem, but you create another, right? You, you get them out of your country. You get them away from from the events and developments in your country. But then, in the country where they go, they're free to organize, to raise money, to go on lectures, to go on a lecture circuit. Um, And that's exactly what these political exiles did. Um, they were extremely active in the United States. They networked and collaborated with each other. They were constantly traveling between, especially between Texas and San Antonio, uh, sorry, San Antonio and Los Angeles or San Antonio, El Paso and Los Angeles. So those were kind of nodes of activism. Um, and and they were really almost anywhere Mexican immigrants could be found. Um, and so, uh, so even, so yeah, just to reiterate, even though this is a a subset of a subset, right? A subset of the total population of Mexican immigrants, um, and a subset of it, of the population that supports the Cristero War. They're very vocal. They're very active, and they serve as kind of mm, what's the word I'm looking for? Like change agents or um, provocateurs, I guess, for the for the larger community.
0: Well, and I think this point becomes especially clear in your third chapter. I mean, in your second chapter, you say that almost every community of Mexican immigrants in the U.S. had probably at least a nun or priest or bishop or some sort of dissident. And then in your third chapter, you go on to say how this small group of people manages to punch so hard above its weight. And it's really impressive how extensive their activism is, whether it's print journalism or religious sermons or radios. And then I was really surprised to see films made about all of this. So I was wondering if you tell us some of the ways that they they sort of keep the war going on the north side of the border.
1: I will. And the the film I want to say is the other like white whale of and another white whale of the of my research project. I never could get oh, my no. hands on that film. I heard about it from a couple of sources, but it just it wasn't in any archive that I could find. So for the researchers out there that are interested in this if you find it, (laughs) I write about it, please. And I'd also love to see it. Um, so, uh, yeah, I mean, I think, I think what I was trying to do in that chapter was to show how there were varieties of varieties of political activism and varieties, varieties of ways that these, um, that these exiles and refugees Brought the conflict to the United States and then also supported the conflict and possibly even prolonged the conflict, although we I don't like to get into hypotheticals, but you know, funded the conflict and armed the conflict from the United States. So, um, so yeah, I mean, by creating um a print culture around the Cristero cause in the United States, you know, the the um Major newspapers for the Mexican migrant community, La Prensa and La Opinion, were constantly reporting on developments in Mexico um, for their audiences in the United States. The um, other newspapers I used, El Amigo del Hogar, which was in Indiana Harbor and was read by people, by Mexican migrants in the Midwest. Um, One thing that I talked about a little bit in the book, but some really great scholarship has come out since the book was published. and, and I talked about it in in certain parts, but uh, was letters and the way that migrants used letters um, to relay news uh, and to talk about their concerns that they were having well, in the United States. Their concerns about the conflict in Mexico um, and and just to, if I I mean I I don't know if it's okay to plug another <laughs> book <laughs> um, in in this, but the uh, the book that's come out fairly recently, is um, a book by Jose Orozco. It's called Receive Our Memories, The Letters of Luz Moreno. And it, it, it really talks about a later period than the Cristero period, but it talks about a family that that is exchanging um, letters about letters between Mexico and the United States and how much they're keeping track, track of the news. They're relaying the news and events to each other. Um, and, and I think we can backstream a little bit from a book like that and and know that people were doing that in the 1920s. Unfortunately, we don't have a lot of that. Those letters. Some of them are in the Venegas family archives, um, which is in. Um, let me see where that is. That's in uh, California, um, and I looked at it, and I should remember exactly where it is. <laughs> but um, <laughs> I'll get back to you on that. So, uh, so okay. So letters were very interesting. Print culture, newspapers. I think I talked about, I, I talked about pamphlets um, and the pamphlets that I found in the archives that were sort of, they're, they're called, I love, they're called volantes in Spanish. So they're like flyers. Well, I guess that translates as flyers, but there are things that fly around, mm-hmm. right? So these pamphlets that get, that are kind of ephemeral, but you know that they were being passed around or they were being posted on walls. Um, so, uh, so, so, but then it, it, it spans this kind of activism and awareness spans from public media, but then also to coded letters, secret discussions, um, plots, <laughs> seditious plots, right? And, the, and, and there are groups of, and I, I wrote about that Am I jumping ahead of cha- chapter? No, or is that in that chapter? That's just fine. Uh,
0: I think yeah. you do absolutely right about that in this chapter. The connections people make. Yeah,
1: Jose Bandera. Yeah, exactly. So they they, um, you know, there are there are groups that are actually trying to uh, raise money to send it to the troops to collect arms and send them to the troops, and then just a few groups that are trying to actually mount rebellions from the United States. And none of these are successful. And that was another thing I had to do. Um, kind of as I wrote the book was, was sort of realize and embrace the fact that. This was a losing cause. I mean, these people in the United States didn't somehow win the war, right? They ultimately were not able to overthrow the Calle's government, which was their objective. But they participated in this really wide range of activities, some of which were were really serious, some of which got them into legal trouble um, in order to support this political cause back home in Mexico. And that really tells us a different story about Mexican migrants Um about migrants in general, but about Mexican migrants, especially who have tended to be written about as labor migrants, as, you know, people that worked in the fields and the railroads and the factories, um, and less about people, although that's, that's really changed a lot, um, even since, you know, even the last 10 years ago, but they, or so, but they have tended to be written about as people who, um, weren't so political. And I think what we see here is people who were really, really political, so political that they were willing to take risks um, for their political beliefs and their religious beliefs in the US while they you were in definitely the US.
0: almost get a sense of, of overflowing politics, um, beginning in this chapter three, and then in chapter four, as these networks that nominally all support the Cristeros really start to uh, come into conflict with one another, either because they have different means or visions or goals. And then for people that study Mexican history, there's some familiar faces that show up that you may not expect, like Felix Diaz or, or other De La does, and, and the conflicts that emerge between them. So I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about why a common leadership isn't really able to form or, or stably form and, and how that dynamic plays out.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think, I think this is essentially um, the problem of the post-revolutionary period that there never was one single alternative to the revolutionary state, one single person or even political movement that all of the various dissidents could get behind. There was a lot of disagreement about. Um, how to, there was a lot of resistance to the revolutionary state, right? But there was also a lot of disagreement about how best to resist it and which, which person, which leader to throw people's weight behind. And um, I think, you know, the Cristeros were not appealing to plenty there were plenty of political exiles who did not see the Cristeros as an appealing alternative um did not necessarily think that they should be in charge of Mexico they thought they sorry they sought uh Cristero support for their movements um so you have people like Felix Diaz or Adolfo de la Huerta kind of flirting with these religious Ex- these kind of religious these cristero partisans in the United States and seeking their support. And sometimes these the cristeros would throw their support between behind one um between one potential, you know, revolutionary or counter-revolutionary or another. Um but there never was a consensus and there never was a single leader that emerged from the cristero movement. And so I think I mean and that's something that a lot of scholars have written about Ben falla has written about that um about, you know, there's there's are varieties of resistance to the Mexican revolutionary state, but they don't congeal. They don't ever all come together. And that's, that's it, That, that tells us two things and sort of tells us partly why the, the, you know, president, uh, Plutarco Elias Calles founds the PNR, the Partido Nacional de la, de la Revolución. Um, and that becomes the PRI, uh, the, the, institutionalized revolutionary party, which goes on to rule Mexico for 71 years. And so on the one hand, you know, these people who are resisting the revolutionary government, they're really unsuccessful because out of this period emerges the single party that controls Mexican politics for most of the 20th century, well, until the year 2000. At the same time, these varieties of resistance don't go away, and so now what? What there's a, there are a number of scholars. So Fala, as I mentioned, Sarah Ostin is another one um, who talk about these sort of varieties of resistance to the Mexican one party state and the ways that they made that state, despite the fact that it held power for so long, they made it weaker than scholars assumed for a long time. So, um, so it's not unusual that or it's not surprising to me that the Cristeros weren't able to, that these exiles in the United States weren't able to unite in a, in a single movement for political resistance because that didn't happen in Mexico either. Well, and I
0: think you really illustrate the significance of the movement, even though it is one that lost, but yet it is one that loses nominally, or at least that's how a lot of the combatants feel, as you said, in 1929 as these peace agreements are made. Um, but obviously the conflict keeps going and the debates keep going. Um, could you tell us a little bit more about what the quote unquote peace looked like for these big networks of people that formed in the 1920s?
1: Um, I think the peace looked like a betrayal by the institutional Catholic church. Um, and it also looked like a kind of a schism within the Mexican church. So I talked about, and this is also something that I've, um, I'm in, I mean, I talk about with people, regularly when we, when I talk about the history of the Catholic church or even about the Catholic church today, right? There's not one Catholic church and there isn't even one Catholic episcopacy, right? There are bishops who (laughs) take positions and they don't always agree with each other. And sometimes there are different political wings within the episcopacy. And this is true in the United States and it's true. It was true in Mexico at this time. So I talk about in the book, how there were, um, sort of more radical resistance bishops, <laughs> hashtag resistance bishops, I guess. <laughs> and um, and then how there were the more conciliatory bishops. And it was ultimately the conciliatory bishops um, that worked out the agreement with the Mexican state, right, with the Mexican government. And um, got the Cristeros to agree to lay down arms and, um, you know, in, in exchange for some sort of Uh, relatively loose promises by the Mexican government and to the, to, to the more radical bishops. And the bishop that I talk about the most is Jose de Jesus Manriquez y Zarate, because he really becomes a sort of spiritual godfather of the, of the, of the Cristero resistance in the United States. And, and he's well, he was well known among Cristeros in Mexico as well. Um, And he was just apoplectic at the, um, at the fact that, that that members of the hierarchy had signed an agreement with the Mexican government um, without achieving what the Cristeros had sought all along, which was the overthrow of President calles and the, and the, um, and the, and the removal of the anti-clerical laws from the Mexican constitution. And that didn't happen until the 1990s. So they did not, so, you know, they, they didn't achieve their goals. And I think for, um, you know, I think the, I guess your question of like, how did, Catholics or how did Mexican Catholics view the settlement, the final settlement and the end of the war. You know, it also, although it wasn't a satisfactory ending for them, um, and it wasn't even an ending because as I've talked about, there continued to be uprisings in the 1930s. And then I can talk about what happened in the 1940s when I talk about my next project, but, um, this doesn't go away as an issue. People remember the Cristero war in Mexico to this day, um, And, uh, where was I going with that? (laughs) Hold on a second. You can block it. You can, you can, you can erase this part where I stayed. Uh, (laughs) let's see. I was talking about, um, oh, okay. So the other thing that happens is that I think the perceived defeat of the Catholic partisans of the Cristeros in the Cristero war or the perceived, um, surrender Uh, that that happens at the end of the war also contributes to the (sighs) mythology or the, the narrative of martyrdom, which I talk about, you know, some later in the book, but to the idea that, you know, these... Okay, that they, they they may not have won the war, but they became martyrs. That you know these the, they were persecuted by the government, and they'll be remembered as um, martyrs who died at the hands of this anti clerical, irreligious government. And so, um, so even though the even though the, the you know it's a it's a bitter end for a lot of the Catholics who had fought in the war, there's also a yeah I guess it's a bittersweetness because for Catholics to for especially for Catholics, you know, of that time and of that place, martyrdom is is kind of like the best thing that can happen, right? Because you are, it's it's you you are guaranteed to go right to heaven. You're guaranteed saint, to be a saint. And so um, so this so Catholics subsequently after the, in the in the years and decades after the Cristero War, Catholics Catholics in Mexico. And I, see, I'm saying I'm already I'm saying Catholics in Mexico, and I should be saying sort of I should be saying Cristero supporters are Catholic partisans, um, but they really begin almost immediately, um, m- kind of yeah, like mythologizing the, the 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 people who fought in the war, and especially the martyrs, the people they regarded as martyrs who died in the
0: war. Well, I think there's a, a number of legacies to tease out, so I'm excited to jump to the the final chapter of the book about this legacy, and then about your. Your current work, because when I think of the legacies of this war, I think of the way conservatives in Mexico after this really try to make sure they're never subordinated to a church hierarchy again, that they, that somebody can't make this negotiation for them. So I'm curious, in your fifth chapter, when you talk about this beatification or your current work, what do you what do you see the legacies of this being both for Mexican communities in the U.S. or or in Mexico?
1: Um. OK, so in. The U.S., um, I'll, I'll do the U.S. first and then I'll talk. take the second part because that has to do more with the work I'm doing now. But um, in the U.S., what I was so interested to find was memory, was the way that this war had been memorialized and remembered within Mexican migrant communities and the way that continued migration from the Cristero region helped to keep those memories alive. And I was really lucky um, when I was writing, turning the dissertation into the, into a book, I was really lucky in the, in that um, a movie came out about the Cristero war. It was called for greater glory. I'm not sure if you've seen it. It wasn't, um, it wasn't the best movie in the world, but, but it was, it was very, um it was very kind of pious and, and, and for a historian, it was very uns- unsatisfying because it wasn't, um, it wasn't nuanced enough, which I guess is probably a really common complaint that historians have about movies, about their topic. Um, we're kind of sitting there shaking our fists going. It was more complicated than that, right but um, But this movie came out. it was heavily promoted by the Knights of Columbus in the United States, and as a result, a lot of Catholic publications were interviewing mexican Mexican migrants and actually children and grandchildren of Mexican migrants in the 20s to ask them about um their memories of the Cristero War, and so I actually was able. I interviewed people myself, but then I was also to g- able to gather some of these stories and get collect this evidence of the ways that um, that the war was was remembered. Um, and you know, I, I think the the takeaway from that, and one that I'm still interested in exploring, is you know how did that how did those memories impact community formation in the U.S. You know, we we just we've had it. It, within the history of Mexican migration, for a long time, I think the Chicano movement of the 60s and 70s sort of sort of colored the way that people viewed Mexican American politics. And I think pulling at these memories of the Cristero War and talking to people about these family memory memories of this church state conflict made me realize that there that the politics of the Mexican diaspora are still. More nuanced than um, than than is widely understood, and that there are people who um, for generations remained you know had a really negative um, perception of the Mexican revolution, for example. I mean, I, I talked to a guy who talked, who, who said, you know, everything was better in Mexico when Porfirio, when Don Porfirio <laughs> Diaz was president, right? And that's something that is not, you, you just, it's surprising for people who study the history of Mexico and the history of Mexican migration. Like Porfirio Diaz is considered in the, in the historical, the common historical narrative is that he was a dictator. And so here you have people expressing a really different political perspective and a, and a, a different view of Mexican history. So that was very interesting. Um, Okay. Let me see if I remember correctly your question about Mexicans in Mexico. Is it sort of how, would you, would you, would you ask me again? Oh, sure. Mexico. I
0: I guess mainly let's just use this as a chance for you to talk about your work currently, because it sounds like you're following up on these legacies and conservative movements in Mexico.
1: Yeah. So I, so I'm writing what is, it's not exactly a sequel, um, but it's, it's got a lot of similarities to the first project, although also enough things that are different that are keeping me interested in it. Um, although I'm still interested in the story from the first book. So, uh, I'm writing about the, an organization that I briefly talked about in the end of the first book called la Unión Nacional Sinarquista and uh, the National Synarchist Union and this was a group that um, was founded by people who were former cristeros or who were the children of Cristeros, um, people who had had or had family members or just people who admired the Cristeros. Um, And it was founded as a kind of successor organization. It became extremely, it was founded in 1937 and by the mid-1940s claimed to have 500,000 members across Mexico. And what I have realized, what I've uh, uncovered, which is not surprising to me, but hasn't been discussed in the literature um, and I guess wouldn't be surprising to anyone who read my first book is that yeah there were Sinarchistas all over the United States as well. And there were um, actual sort of chapters of the organization. And and the difference in, I mean, one of the differences in doing the research for this book as for compared to the first one is that this was an actual organization. this It was a single organization with a leadership structure, um, and people called themselves sinarquistas, whereas in the 1920s, people didn't uniformly call themselves uh, cristeros. And so it makes it somewhat easier to sort of search for their material and, and figure out what their organization looked like, um, in Mexico and in the United States. And they were a, um, they were not a political party. They were an organization that advocated for, um, a, basically a rejection of the Mexican revolution, a rejection of Mexican, of revolutionary culture, and a new, um, a new society in Mexico that would unite church and state. So they were what's known as integralists. They were, um, they, they advocated, um, or they, they opposed the separation of church and state. They thought that the church, the Mexican state should be subordinate to the church and that Mexicans should live according to the moral code of Catholicism. And they, when it was really, um, on the one hand, it, it sounds like a sort of radical vision to us now, but on the other hand, it was happening at the same time as, um, uh, Spanish nationalism, Italian fascism, um, the Nazi movement in Germany. Um, there's a, there was a Brazilian integralist movement, um, and there were integralist movements, as it turns out, all over the Caribbean in the 1940s. And so they were operating in this context of, um, I guess, sort of global reactionary religious politics. And the um, one of the interesting things that they did was they – kind of set up a model society. They established a a couple of utopian colonies in Baja, California and in Sonora. So in the North of Mexico, Um, and they actually got these Catholic colonists to go Mexican Catholic colonists to go and settle there. And the idea was that they would create, you know, this community, which could then be, um, you know replicated throughout Mexico or replicated on a much larger scale and in the communities they they were agrarian communities but um you know very very religious religion um and and catholic ritual sort of shaped the day and the daily lives of the people there the communities fell apart after about 4 <laughs> years they chose a really bad part of mexico to <laughs> to do an agrarian to make an agrarian community and it was dry up there and they didn't have they didn't have the resources that they needed they didn't have the farming expertise that they needed to be successful up there but those communities were a rallying call for them they they raised um they raised a lot of money, um, especially from immigrants in the United States, um, who had comparatively more money, um, to try and get those off the ground. And although they didn't, they did collapse. And then there was some, um, and then the, the organization itself sort of, um, sort of receded, certainly, certainly diminished in size and receded from the public sphere in Mexico. Um, at the same time, it's actually still around. Um, it's still, still exists in Mexico. (laughs) They've got a Facebook page. Um, and they they also have a physical office. It's, it's, um, origin, its city of origin was Leon, Guanajuato. And so it's, it's still there. And, um, and they continued to play a role, you know, even after they, their membership declined, they continued to play a political role, supporting the pan political party, the Partido de Acción Nacional, Um, and, uh, allying with a lot of other right wing Catholic groups in Mexico. So they kind of helped keep alive in Mexico. And I mean, I would say this is part, they're part of this whole arc, uh, that, that we could say it starts with the Cristero war and it continues today of, you know, religious, like real reactionary, religious politics in Mexico, um, that's still alive and still important. Um, and, uh, and 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 really sort of con- persistent. <laughs> it it, it's, it persists in Mexico throughout the 20th century and into the 21st. So I argue that it this this stuff continues to be really interesting and important to study because um, it helps us understand why um, there are you know wh- why people take why there are political groups that take these positions. Why there are still I mean a very small number of them, but there are still uh, integralists and even, even monarchists in Mexico. So, um, it's so, so understand, you know, we think of these right wing groups sometimes, or not we, but I don't know, I guess scholarship or the Academy sometimes thinks of these right wing groups as, um, fringe groups, but I would argue that their persistence, um, means they're, they're not, they, they might be operating on the fringe, but they're not going away. You know, they're not ephemeral. So I think they're really worthy of study, and they're really interesting.
0: Well, I think that sounds incredibly interesting, especially given how um, some of the literature on the on the and other groups is uh, a number of years old at this point. So I'm excited to see some new scholarship coming out about. That
1: yeah no there and there has been there's been a lot of scholarship on it in Mexico, not as much in English and not a lot that has incorporated the story of the um of the folks in the United States, which I think helps us understand kind of why they were able to survive where they were getting some of their money from um but also just kind of tells a fuller story about that you know not just that they exist in the in in the United States but also that they existed in this global milieu in which um which these sort of right right wing religious movements were, um, were kind of on the rise uh, in a number of places, and they were connected to each other. So it's a, it's 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 an interesting question. And of course, now we look at the world today, and we think you know we see a lot of um, nationalist movements, a lot of right wing movements, a lot of populist movements, and these kinds of things haven't gone away. And there are sometimes um, there are echoes of what people were saying in the nineteen forties in what people say now. So, so this, I think this topic, you know, remains pretty relevant.
0: Well, thank you so much for your time sharing your both current work and this excellent book, Mexican Exodus. Um, Thank you so much for coming on the show.
1: Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure, Ethan.